0: We all can be seated and pray with me. God, you are indeed our glory and our prize. We adore you and are grateful that you have called us children. We pray that that would spur us on to pay attention to you and to the things that you are doing. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the work that you are up to in your world. Lord, we want to be those who see your hands at work and who rejoice. We don't want to grow numb or walk by your handiwork in our lives or in other people's lives and not take notice of it. So we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might see, that we might rejoice, and that we might worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, newness is something that we are infatuated by, and Maybe I should clarify this a little bit. When I say we, I don't just mean we in this room. I don't just mean we who live in this age or we who live in the West, but I mean we as in collective humanity for all of time, we tend to be people who are infatuated with new things. We see new things that promise to fix bad things and we naturally tend to get a little bit excited. Uh, I can remember, uh, today, when you go and get a new phone, it's not really any different, right? You go get a new phone, and it's, maybe the screen's a little bit bigger. Maybe it moves a little bit faster. Maybe the camera's a little bit better. But everything's basically the same. But before iPhones and smartphones took over... Phone companies used to give you a new phone every two years as an incentive to stay on their plan, and they'd give it to you for free. Those were kind of the golden days. Um, But I can remember, uh, as you would get near to that two years, when you would get a new phone, there would be this sense of excitement that would well up in you, that you would uh, go to your computer and look at the different phones that might be available, And there was actually this anticipation of spending the next couple days after you got your new phone playing with it and figuring it out because it would actually be different. Some of them would open like a a long ways flip phone. Some of them would flip the other way and there'd be a, a full keyboard. They would slide and they had different kinds of keys. The menus were set up different. Some of them had cameras and some didn't. Some had full keyboards. Some had small keyboards. Some had color screens and some didn't There was an excitement to figuring out what all the new things that it would be. Now, some of you younger folks don't remember this, but that's okay. Um, one of the things that I think we learned in that is as excitement would build up, one of the things that continually happened is once you got your hands on the new thing, the excitement would really quickly wear off. Things didn't live up to the expectation that you had. And we quickly learn that there's a difference between our expectation and our experience. Right? We talk about a whole different lot of different ways that we've seen this difference show up. And one of the things that we've, I think, subtly learned from seeing a difference between our expectation and our experience is we tend to downplay new things. When something comes along that promises a new, that will fix the old and broken, we can become a little bit hesitant to believe it, a little bit slow to cling on tightly to it, assume that what is offered won't actually be fully delivered, And I want us to be aware of this because this morning we're going to be in Isaiah 43. And in Isaiah 43, God is going to promise to do a new thing. And for a people like us who've heard promises like this a lot and have been let down as many times, it's easy for us to not trust this promise very fully, or to think it will be actually less than what is delivered to us. And so I want us to be aware of that temptation as we begin reading what Isaiah says, the Lord says, in Isaiah 43. So Isaiah 43, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, Who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old, behold. I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. If you're taking notes, just real quickly, kind of the outline of this morning, there's three things I want you to notice, and then I want to give you two encouragements to take with you. So three things to notice, and then two ways that I hope to encourage you this morning. So the first thing I want you to notice is who is this God who makes this promise? Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but God has a tendency to show who he is before he gives promises or commands. So think about this. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, when was it that God gave them commands? Well, first, he sent the plagues. He freed them from slavery, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he then gives them The Ten Commandments. He gives them the law. He makes a covenant with them after he has showed who he is to them. We see the same thing here. God first starts off with a description, a, a reminder of who he is before he tells Israel the promise. Look at verse 16. Who is this Lord? He's the one who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. He's the one who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. He's the one who causes them to lie down and to quench them like a wick. This God is the God of the Exodus. He's the God who sees his people on the shore of a mighty sea before them with a mighty army chasing behind them and shows up, splits the sea, makes a walking path for his people to go across, crashes the waters over the army, and brings freedom and covenant and hope to a trapped and enslaved people. That's who this God is. He's the God who delivers and judges. He's the God who makes a people from not a people. This is the God who speaks into darkness and brings forth light. Who speaks into nothing and creates all that. Is. The God of Isaiah 43 is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the God of the Exodus, the God who delivers his people. And this is good news because things for Isaiah and Israel were not good. So, first, I want you to notice who this God is. And then the second thing I want you to notice is the broken creation. I did a a little bit of thinking this week, and this is something that the world is broken. I think this is the only thing. You do some thinking and, and see if you can think of something else that would maybe fit in this bucket, and after the service, let me know. But I think this may be the only thing that all humans, for all time, have all agreed upon. Like, I don't know that there's anybody who disagrees that things are broken. Right? Every religion believes that things are broken. Every not-religion, secularist, naturalist, whatever you want to call these people, they believe that things are broken. The only difference between the religions and the not-religions, if you want to call them that, are one has the assumption that there is a God who's involved, who cares, maybe is present and sorting some of this out, and the others believe that there is no God and we have to do it ourselves, but both camps believe that things are broken. They have different identifying markers of maybe what exactly is broken and different solutions of how exactly we fix it, but I think this is maybe the only thing, at least one of the only things, that we can all agree on that things are broken, and so different religions have said, worship this God or worship this God try harder. Politicians say, give me your power, trust me, and I'll fix things for you. Parents tell their kids, be nice, because if we were all a little nicer, then maybe the problems would go away. Some people lean into technology and think, if we can get this sorted out, then that will cascade and fix all the other problems. Or some people say, ooh, maybe technology is actually the problem. Let's hold that at a distance. We all believe that the world is broken and are in search of solutions. And this brokenness was true in Isaiah's day as well. You see, Isaiah had inherited the story of all that is. You know the story as well, because you belong to this line. God creates everything, and he calls it good. Very good. He creates Adam, and he creates Eve. And Adam and Eve, in a shameful turn, decide that they want to grasp wisdom and knowledge on their own terms, and in so doing, bring in sin and chaos into the world. Things only then get worse. You know the story. They have a couple sons. One son kills the other son. Things continue to get worse. This son, Cain, has a great-great-great-grandson named Lamech, who then is even worse than Cain. And then things get worse, and there's a flood, and God cleanses the earth. And we might think, okay, that's kind of the, the height of depravity. But then you turn your page in the Bible, and you find the Tower of Babel. We know God wouldn't leave things broken, and so he calls Abraham. And Abraham's family is supposed to bring blessing where there had been curse. But as you read through the Old Testament, you find that Abraham's family, instead of being a light to the nations, tends to be trapped in the same darkness that entrapped the nations. Instead of bringing blessing and hope, they tend to worship the same idols that the nations do and get trapped in the same sins that the nation did. And in Isaiah's day, things weren't looking so good. Isaiah could see creation around him, could see the world, could see the very people of God broken, desperate, and in need. You and I could paint a similar picture. We know this story continues. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is raised. Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand and gives His Spirit to dwell in our midst But if you look around, churches often are filled with the same pain and hurt that's present in the rest of the world. We might find ourselves wondering, what is going on? How can this be? But here's the goodness, good news. God has a habit of speaking into the dark. God has a habit of turning things over. And so it's into this darkness, into this brokenness, into this hopelessness that God speaks a word. God says, verse 19, Behold, I am doing a new thing. God says, I will make things new. And for a people who are pained by the status quo, for a people who desperately desire to see God honored, for His promises to be fulfilled, for things to be right, the promise that God is going to do something new is like a fresh drink of water to a parched throat. God says, I am doing something new here's the third thing I want you to notice. So we've seen who this God is. We've seen that the creation, the world is broken. And then the third thing I want you to notice is the promise of new creation. It's out of the broken that God promises, promises to set right. There's a line in him by Isaac Watts called joy to the world we tend to just keep this locked in at christmas and it makes me a little bit sad the line goes like this he jesus comes to do what to make his blessings flow and to a people who've seen curses flow the thought of blessings flowing is a pleasant thought but the line doesn't stop there he comes to make his blessings flow how far As far as the curse is found. That's pretty. He comes to make his blessings flow, not just a little ways, but as far as the curse is found. Whatever sin has tainted, Jesus fixes. I want you to notice this. Look down at verse 20. This might seem like a strange line to you at first. It says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. But here's something that might be helpful for you to know about these animals. These are chaos creatures. So it it wasn't uncommon at all for God to pronounce judgment on peoples and on nations. And one of the forms that this often took is God promised these people would get defeated in battle and would get carted off out of their city. And then as almost kind of salt in the wound, the prophets would let the people know, not only will you be carted out of your city, but your city will be filled by these desert animals. And so you, humans, you who are supposed to rule over the beasts of the field, will now have your buildings inhabited by the very animals that you were supposed to rule over. And so these these desert animals, these ostriches and jackals, these animals throughout the prophets are a sign of just how broken these people's inhabitants are going to be. What they've inherited will now be inherited by the animals, and they will be carted off away from their home. And God says, here's the new thing that's going to happen. These very animals who picture chaos, who picture destruction, who picture suffering, these animals, God says, will honor Not only will that change things, but the very deserts themselves, God says he's going to cut trenches through and make rivers. Where there was death and thirst and destruction, there's now flowing rivers, and flowing rivers bring life. Where there was death, there will be life. Where there was pain and suffering, there will be joy and hope. The dry, desolate ground will have water. And God's chosen people, who currently experience want and thirst, will be satisfied. What is this new thing that God says He's going to do? It's nothing short of making all things new. In in fact, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. So in, in Revelation 21... These themes in Isaiah 43 and some from Isaiah 66 and some other places all get woven together and teased out. And John, who finds himself trapped on an island, receives a vision, and towards the end of the vision, in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, verse 1, John tells us what he sees. Look at this. Then I saw... And making all things new. Well, what does all entail? You know the answer. All entails everything. Nothing short of all of the heavens above and all of the earth below. Well, what does this sound like? sounds like Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the end, God makes the heavens and the earth, the new heavens. And the new earth. This is the picture come full circle. Heavens and earth, new heavens and new earth, pain wiped away. I want you to put yourself in the the shoes of John and his listeners. John, as we know, was on the island because he'd been proclaiming Jesus. He was under house arrest, the extreme version, trapped on an island. And he's writing to churches. Who are suffering. They're assailed from within, so there's people believing false things, there's people mistreating each other, there's people whose love has grown cold, and they're also attacked from without. They're being persecuted, sometimes even killed. Cut off from jobs, cut off from the economy, pushed off, and these people believe that their God is making all things new. But painfully, all things don't seem very new to these people. And it is into this darkness, into this hopelessness, that God speaks. And into this darkness, God promises to do a new thing. He promises to wipe the tears away. He promises to take away the outcries and the pain. He promises even to undo death and to dwell with us. And at the center of all of this in the book of Revelation is the slain lamb. At the center of this whole story is Christ crucified and resurrected. At the center of all of this is the inbreaking of things made new into things that are old. To our modern ears, the most surprising thing about Easter morning is that somebody dead was no longer dead. We live in a world where people tend to assume that everything's kind of closed in and the way that things happen is the way that they always happen, and so dead people don't come back to life. And so, the most surprising, shocking thing to our ears is that Jesus was resurrected. Well, in Jesus' day, there was another thing that was really surprising to his contemporaries that we tend to miss. You remember this? The Pharisees actually believed in resurrection. So, the mere fact that somebody was brought back to life wasn't incredibly surprising. But there were two surprising things about it one was who was resurrected, Jesus. But the other thing that was really surprising to many of Jesus' contemporaries was the timing. And so many Jews believed that at the end, God would raise all people back to life. He would then judge, sort things out, clean things up, fix what's broken, and things would be right. The shocking thing for many of Jesus' contemporaries was that Jesus was raised in the middle of history. All right, so rather than creation, all of this sin going on, God showing up, raising everybody back to life, enacting judgment, sorting things out, there's now a, a break. Now here's Jesus resurrected in the middle of the timeline. What is going on here? Well, Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of this resurrection. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of of new creation. What that means for us, for Paul, for the church, is that new creation is bursting in already. The rest of history is kind of like, you remember when you were a kid and you used to have those music boxes that you would wind up? And when you got done winding it up, there might be a whole lot of things happen that you don't expect. Maybe your sister comes busting in the door and screams at you. Maybe your mom calls you to come to a chore. All these different things may happen, but you know one thing for sure. The song will play. Once it's wound up, the song's going to play. Once Jesus is raised from the dead, you and I don't know a whole lot about what's going to happen, but once new creation comes bursting forth, the song Is going to play. Jesus will have his way. God will show up. God will sort things out, set things right, and fix things up. God will make all things new. Beloved, your God, the God that you worship, the God who knows you, the God who called you, who Saved you, who has given you his very spirit, that same God will make all things new. And in light of that, I want to encourage you with two things. Two things I want you to notice. This promise is not merely future. Yes. It is future-oriented. We are looking forward to the day when Jesus returns, when Jesus raises the dead to life, when Jesus judges, when new heavens and new earth happen. We're looking forward to that, but it's not merely future. So God is right now, like right this moment, making things new by the power of his Spirit and the witness of his church. Right now, he's calling people to trust in Jesus. Jesus said that, that is being born again. Another way we might describe that is made new. Right this moment, people are being called to believe in Jesus. Right this moment, people are being called to leave their sin behind and to trust in Jesus. Right this moment, people are being sanctified, are leaving sin and clinging to Jesus. Right this moment, Jesus is building His church and the gates of hell will not overcome. We'll talk about that a lot more next week. But right this moment, God is at work making things new. He's using His people to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give hope to the hopeless. And all that sounds a lot like Revelation 21 in miniature. Right this moment, time zones kind of make this a little bit wonky, but at 11.20 on Sunday morning, all around the globe, God is getting praise from peoples from all kinds of tribes and languages. Right this moment, God is at work making things new. And if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you get a foretaste of what is to come. You and I are able to be witnesses to what God is doing in our lives and in the world right now if only we lift up our eyes and look to see what our faithful God is faithfully doing doing. So let me encourage you. Believe that God will make all things new, but know that God is already doing some of that. Be ready to see it. Look for opportunities to praise God for the work that he is doing and worship with full and glad hearts. Here's the second thing I want to encourage you with. Don't be overwhelmed by the pain of this age, right? Don't be overwhelmed by the pain of this age. We live in a broken world. Things continue to be broken, and life continues to hurt at times. We continue to wrestle with sin in our midst. We continue to suffer the consequences that other people, when they sin against us, it continues to be difficult to do sustained life together because we are a broken people but i want to encourage you i want you to know there is no pain experienced now that your god will not fix so here's what i want you to do i want you to think of something that pains you right now what causes you pain what causes you grief what hurts And once you have that in mind, let me encourage you to etch this question on your heart and ask it of yourself. If your God has undone death, and he has because he raised Jesus from the dead and he will because he will raise us from the dead, if your God has undone death, what pain is there that he will not undo? If your God has undone death, what pain can you experience that he will not undo? We are a people who aren't promised an easy path. We don't get to float above the fray. Things don't just fall together because we happen to worship Jesus. But we are a people who belong to the God, who rights every wrong, whose blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so when you find yourself frustrated, when you find yourself on the brink, ready to give up and quit, ask yourself, if God has undone death and sin and Satan and all that's wrong, what pain will he not also undo? Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Yes, Lord, bring your kingdom. Bring it on earth as in heaven give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray that you would do that because yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power, not just now, but forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.